When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Forever! Hi, Anna. Hi, Andrew. And hey, everybody else. And welcome to our podcast, Scary Scary Stories Stories to to Tell on the Pod. Pod. It's a podcast about scary stories, urban legends, and scary things that you tell us about that happened to you. But mostly, it's a friendship-themed comedy podcast um, (laughs) centered around a loose theme for the Mm -hmm. hopes of attracting uh, sweet, supple, young ears. From coast to coast and hemisphere to hemisphere. Yes, which brings us to um, today. Today's a Wednesday. It is a Wednesday, which is an Urban Legisode day. Yes, and um, Urban Legisodes can be loosely defined as anything that made anyone scared um, that isn't part of the scary stories tell in the dark books. Exactly, exactly. So we're, we're casting a broad net. Uh, and something that Anna and I realized, which was really delightful, is that we have a lot of Australian listeners. What's that about, do we wonder? I mean, kind of the kind of the worldwide most attractive as a as like a I don't know, I don't know if it's the accent, I don't know if it's like the sun-kissed nature. Yeah, I don't know what it is. I I love that we can be the other side of that coin for them, that we're sort of the <laughs> funny friend and i like that um i just watched margot robbie's 73 questions vogue interview oh yeah and it was great i i don't know how much those things are planned but uh they sure make them seem as organic as possible i don't know, I know. if that makes me an aunt but i know. know well because she offers him a glass of water and he says okay and then she doesn't give it to him and then like 50 questions oh. later she's like did i not give you a glass of water and he's like yeah <laughs> I don't know. That's true. I'm also realizing that I'm I'm kind of including New Zealand in that Australian category of attractive people, and That's true. I'm not just saying that because of Taika Waititi, but I it certainly is it certainly factors into the equation. That's true, and you know what? I like him even though he is Hitler. It's true. Wow. And someone I didn't had to that. say it. They found they found <laughs> those tapes that they released. They found those secret. Secret tapes. But uh, we in particular got a message from Invisigoth in our last week's episode recommending us to check out The Legend of the Bunyip and The Picnic at Hanging Rock. And guess what, listeners? This episode is an ode to Australia. So we are going to talk about both those dang things. 
Yes, we are, because we are we are what obedient <laughs> to our listeners. Yes, tell us what to do, and we'll say how high. We are like that small dog that you saw at the dog park, Anna, that you just realized was suddenly lying on its back, revealing its belly to you unprovoked. Really good. Really, really <laughs> pinkest belly. Uh, so we've divvied it up. So this is both of our urban legisodes. Yes, it's true. Because it would be really unfair true. to ask Andrew to raise both those twins. <laughs> Uh, so Anna, do you want to start with the bunyip? I don't. Do you want to okay. start? Yeah, I'm happy to. <laughs> what a twist. See, this is how the friendship works. This you is roll how with the punches. Works. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, okay. So I'm going to be talking about Picnic at Hanging Rock, which is actually a fictional novel by Joan Lindsay uh, that was published in 1967. Oh, it's a novel. It is. It is a novel, yes, which I think when we were first told about it, Anna and I assumed would be um, sort of a true crime, uh, mysterious disappearance, Uh, but it was in fact a novel. However, the novel is much like uh, My Name is Alice and Jake's Jay's Journal. Uh, It is purposefully vague about how real or fake it is. And uh, the author, Joan Lindsay, in interviews is like, well, I won't go into detail about what the true life inspiration Mm. is. But I think largely people say it's entirely fictional, um, mostly because it's set in the year 1900. And um, all the dates don't line up with what the dates were actually in 1900. So that is one little clue. And the rest is none of these people, is there any evidence that they existed? But this is spooky because the novel begins with a brief foreword, which reads, Whether Picnic at Hanging Rock is fact or fiction, my readers must decide for themselves. Ah. As, <laughs> as the fateful picnic took place in the year 1900, and all the characters who appear in this book are long since dead, it hardly seems important. Which is how I begin any witness testimony. <laughs> That's how I begin any anecdote that I tell a friend. I'm like, listen. <laughs> so, much like in the story Jason told Anna, I think a lot of the urban legisode lore that comes from this is often from the perspective of people who have read or heard about the book and spread that message. And then soon it becomes a thing that's like, it's not about the book. This is based on a real thing. And that's really? how gradually it becomes like a, a broader lore. Um, it was also made into a movie. It was made into a movie and also uh, a six-episode um, short limited series. Oh, I didn't know that. I'm just seeing it now. Uh, Natalie Dormer from Game of Thrones. Wow. Okay. The maid, main person. Okay. So okay. here is the plot synopsis of the story as told by the scholars at our favorite book. Wikipedia. Give it to us. <laughs> At Appleyard College, a private boarding school for upper-class girls near Mount Macedon. Oh, this is where we're going to start. I think it's Mount Mount Macedon. Mount Macedon. We'll see. Victoria. A picnic is being planned for the students under the supervision of Mrs. Appleyard, the school's headmistress. Appleyard, I feel like, is a bit too on the nose for a school teacher name. It is so fucking wild of a name. It also, this might be the most Andrew Farmer urban legend I've ever heard, based solely on Mrs. Appleyard and Picnic. Yes, we're all going. And, very fittingly, because this week is Valentine's Day, the picnic entails a day trip to Hanging Rock on St. Valentine's Day in 1900. Woo! 
One of the students, Sarah, who is in trouble with Mrs. Appleyard, is not allowed to go. Oh. Th- this is beginning to sound like a BBC movie that my mom would love. Where like the most the most drama is that like a student had a disagreement with the teacher, and then maybe yes. someone like drops a glass bowl. Yes. <laughs> uh, but Sarah's not allowed to go. Sarah's close friend Miranda goes without her. When they arrive, the students lounge about and eat a lunch. Eat a lunch. Okay. Uh, look, I don't know about you, but for me, there are several lunches. <laughs> Did you have lunch? Yeah, I've had a lunch. <laughs> that's true. That really is true. There's, I feel like when you have a lunch that's standing, that's, that's not lunch. That is a version of lunch. Yes. I have a standing and a sitting lunch. Okay. Uh, Afterward, Miranda goes to climb the monolith classic lunch activity, with classmates Edith, Irma, and Marion, despite being forbidden to do so. What is a monolith? A monolith, I think, is like a big stone erection, like a, that's the wrong word. Ha ha, you said erection. Meanwhile, meanwhile, that means something else, idiot. Yeah, or or, or I guess erection is not even the right (laughs) word regardless, because (laughs) it was not something that was put up by by people, assumedly. Maybe it was. Maybe, maybe... um, Aborigines. I know it was part of um, uh, Welcome to Night Vale, which I used to listen to religiously. Typically, it's like a big, it's like a big, tall thing. (laughs) Okay, I got it. No, I know know exactly what you mean. Um, The girl's mathematics teacher, Greta McGraw, follows behind them separately. Miranda, Marion, and Irma climb still higher in a trance-like state while Edith flees in terror. Edith is you and I in this situation, Anna. Yes, correct. Uh, she returns to the picnic in hysterics, disoriented and with no memory of what occurred. Miss McCraw is also nowhere to be accounted for except for being seen by Edith who passed her ascending the rock in her underwear. Mm. Oh. The school scours the rock in search of the three girls and their teacher, but they are not found. The disappearances provoke much local concern and international sensation with rape, abduction, and murder being assumed as probable explanations. Several organized searches of the picnic grounds and the area surrounding the rock itself turn up nothing. Meanwhile, the students, teachers, and staff of the college, as well as members of the community, grapple with riddle-like events. Mike Fitzhubert embarks on a private search of the rock and discovers Irma, unconscious and on the verge of death. And when he fails to return from his search, he is found in an unexplained daze, sitting at the rock with Irma by his friend and uncle's coachman, Albert Crundall. Wow, yes. this got so Australian so fast. My uncle's coachman, coachman. Albert Crendall. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> Concerned parents begin withdrawing their daughters from the prestigious college, prompting various staff to leave. The college handy the college's handyman and maid quit their jobs, and the French instructor, Mile, uh mm, Mademoiselle Diane de Poitiers, announces that she will be getting married and leaving the college as well. Wow, the drama. You a actually junior- have to get married to quit your job. It's 1900s <laughs> Australia. You can't quit if your you job unless you're getting concerns. married. You can't have a job if you're married. <laughs> uh, bu- 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 okay. A junior governess at the college, Dora Lumley, also leaves with her brother Reg, only for both to be killed in a hotel fire. It feels unrelated, oh. but... Amidst the unrest, both in and around the college, Sarah vanishes, only to be found days later, having apparently committed suicide. Her body was found directly beneath the school's tower, with her head crushed beyond recognition. Ah. Mrs. Appleyard, distraught over the events that have occurred, kills herself 
by jumping from a peak on Hanging Rock. Uh. In a pseudo-historical afterward purportedly extracted from a 1913 Melbourne newspaper article, it is written that both the college and the Woodend police station, where the records of the investigation were kept, were destroyed by a bushfire in the summer of 1901. In 1903, rabbit hunters came across a lone piece of frilled calico on the rock, believed to have been part of the dress of the governess, Miss Greta McCraw, but neither she nor the girls were ever found. Uh. Which, very spooky, you can see why it's uh, considered one of the greatest Australian novels, um, kind of a, uh, a look at a community being affected by a strange event. But I have to share, Anna, there's an excised final chapter oh, <laughs> I need that it. takes a turn. Okay. The chapter opens with Edith fleeing back to the picnic area while Miranda, Irma, and Marion push on. Each girl begins to experience dizziness and feels as if she is being pulled from the inside out. Mm, i trying to think when I've ever felt that way. Uh, on Incredicoaster, for sure. Oh, for sure. Wow. That just that experience just keeps on giving to it. Too much. Giving, too much. <laughs> <laughs> a woman suddenly appears climbing the rock in her underwear, shouting, through, and then she faints. <laughs> this woman is not referenced by name and is apparently a stranger to the girls, yet the narration suge- suggests she is Miss McCraw. Miranda loosens the woman's corset to help revive her. Afterwards, the girls remove their own corsets and throw them off the cliff. The recovered woman points out that the corsets appear to hover in midair as if stuck in time and that they cast no shadows. She and the girls continue together. The girls then encounter what is described as a hole in space by which they physically enter a crack in the rock following a lizard. Yes. (laughs) Relate. Okay, okay, now I'm these girls. And then get ready for this sentence, Anna. The unnamed woman transforms into a crab and disappears into the rock. Oh. Marion follows her, then Miranda, but when Irma's turn comes, a balanced boulder, the hanging rock, slowly tilts and blocks the way. The chapter ends with Irma tearing and beating at the gritty face of the boulder with her bare hands. And by the way, all of this happens within 12 pages. (laughs) Oh my God. See, all writers use economy of language, okay? If you're taking (laughs) 30 pages to describe a a package, just think about... (laughs) 12 pages for crab, lizard, rock, corset, Irma. So, so the, the kind of, the kind of, uh, uh, cultural drama surrounding this is that because the success of the book and the movie and the expansive lore that has come from it, uh, in 2017, in conjunction with the 50th anniversary of the novel's publication, Australian student and researcher in social engagement and public art, Amy Spears, gained some attention with her Miranda Must Go campaign, criticizing the popularity of the novel in relation to local tourism at Hanging Rock, and what she perceives is a lack of attention to the area's historical connection with the Aborigines. She noted that the visitor center caters significantly to the myth of the missing schoolgirls with dioramas, videos, panels, and soundtracks from both the novel and the film, while the real history of the monolith and its significance to the indigenous culture was less acknowledged. So then the monolith, then the monolith probably is something put up by um, the Aboriginal uh, uh, groups that were there beforehand. Yes, yeah, or like a Stonehenge situation. Yeah, yeah. And I looked up. Um, Amy Spears, uh, she wrote a uh, an article for Vice, kind of explaining her position, uh, and I thought this was really interesting 
that her kind of closing statement sums it up pretty well. Um, It is for these reasons that I started a campaign called Miranda Must Go. The only way to make people fathom loss on a mass scale is by taking away one of our own beloved cultural icons. Our addiction to mythic vanishing whites must stop. We need a detox, a moratorium on Miranda. By ditching our obsession with the disappearing schoolgirls of Hanging Rock, we can create space in the landscape to remember Aboriginal people, their losses, and incredible survival, despite white Australia's efforts to destroy them for 229 years. But yeah, but it's it makes so true. yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense that like, how annoying would it be if like a uh, a site where like actual crimes against humanity were committed were co opted into like a fictional story about like ghostly disappearances? Um, and also, just even in I'm realizing like in reading that last chapter, I'm sure that like transforming into a lizard and a crab and that sort of stuff must have some loose relationship to um, maybe like a Western understanding of of Aboriginal beliefs. You know, there's no, there's really like no getting around that, nor, nor should there be. I mean, that actually is a thing that factors into a lot of folklore, especially when it comes to um, like, folklore and legends that stem from colonial times <laughs> yeah. you know is you have to consider like who the lens is uh like whose lens is it that's telling you this story um yeah and as you know yeah there's a limit to the books in or the stories from scary stories Tell in the dark that aren't like the native american drum and you're like oh, but yeah oh. I, yeah I've that's been unsure of how to handle those I know. I'm I'm really yeah, I'm curious about those, especially because like yeah, there's there's a lot of those stories that we have not contended with. And maybe we don't, maybe we do, who knows. Um but I do see why the I do see why like this novel would lead to an explosion of people turning this into something that could have possibly happened. Cause when you, when you said something like a hundred years ago, it's enough time that you could be like, well, I mean, what did newspapers do really back then? You know? Yeah. Extra, extra, a Jew fell down. <laughs> right. Oh gosh. And that was just a misunderstanding of when Archduke Ferdinand got shot. That was just like a, you know, <laughs> something got Duke. lost in translation. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's a little brief look at Picnic at Hanging Rock. Oh, Andrew, thank you for that. Good job. You're very welcome. Thank you, Wikipedia. Please um, send us messages about your experiences with Picnic at Hanging Rock, your, your hot yeah. takes. Your sizzling theories. Um, if you are the lizard, please reach out. Um, <laughs> would love to hear your side of the story. Yeah, very interested. Again, there's room for all angles, you know. Yeah, also four or five is a hard number for friends. So, like, whatever misunderstanding happened there, like, would love to hear from all the people involved. Also, the concept of everyone suddenly ripping their corsets off and throwing them off a cliff feels very much in line with what what happens when a friend recommends everyone do something risky and no one fights them on it. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. All right, well, that is Picnic at Hanging Rock. And now we're going to transition on over to... Um, someone who was just someone, a human person (laughs) who was described to me and Andrew as, uh, (laughs) Australia's Bigfoot, which I sort of take issue with because I do think Bigfoot, he belongs to the world. Um, yeah, that's sort of the whole deal. I guess we call him Bigfoot. We do. You know? Okay. So the Bunyip I'm reading from the book of Wikipedia. Great. Um, It's a large mythical creature from Australian Aboriginal mythology and is said to lurk in swamps, billabongs, creeks, riverbeds, and waterholes. So basically, if if you're outside and you're not an in-ground or above-ground pool, there's a bunyip. Oh. It's a freshwater bunyip. That's rough um, to hear. And it goes in the freshwater. So I don't know if that makes you feel scared. It makes me feel safer because I grew up near saltwater. Yes. Um, I'm from the lakes region in New Hampshire, so that does scare me. Oh, no, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't have a whole lot of lakes close to my heart, so this, this is going to be hard for you, Andrew. <laughs> are you ready to have it? Re- I guess, yeah, if it's in New Hampshire, it's far away. All my lights are on, and I am completely dry. Okay, good brag. <laughs> All right, so the bunyip was part of traditional Aboriginal beliefs and stories throughout Australia, while its name, sorry, while its name varied according to tribal nomenclature. In his 2001 book, writer Robert Holden identified at least nine regional variations of the creature known as a bunyip across Aboriginal Australia. Um, It's been traced to Wemboemba or Wargaya language of the Aboriginal people of Victoria and southeastern Australia. And the Europeans sort of came over and were like, look, there's a bunyip or like wrote down about what was being said about bunyips in the early to mid 19th century, which is when Australia was invented. Um, (laughs) They were like, we're here and now things are existing. Okay, so um, it's usually translated as devil or evil spirit. Um, And the bunyip, there's a lot of variations of what it looks like. It's very spooky. Yes, I remember. There's one that like, it kind of looks like a big weird dog with a long snout, but there's others where it's like a big hairy man, right? Yeah, so let's see. It could so some some people described it as an enormous starfish. Um, okay, twist. That was the Murundi people of the Murray River. Um, that they were terrified of it, and that it was a giant oh. starfish. Um, and then the Chalicum bunyip uh, was carved into the banks of the Fiery Creek near Ararat, Victoria. Um, and oh, this Ararat. bunyip had been speared um, after killing an Aboriginal man. Okay, so it so the image doesn't exist anymore. So it's sort of like, um, but yeah, so it, it sort of looks like somewhere between like a puma and like a sea monster. Its head sort of looks like a. Uh, let me see. Yeah, it's it's like um, it's hard to put words to. Yeah, it says sixty percent of sightings resemble seals or swimming dogs, and twenty percent of it. sightings are long-necked creatures with small heads. And the remaining descriptions are ambiguous beyond categorization. Ugh. So it's all over the place. The that is seal all dog, over the- It's so crazy. 
Sorry, I cut you I off. I kind of admire, no, I kind of admire um, Australia's economy in terms of like, we have like all these different cryptid sea monsters and they're just like, it would be as though like the Mothman, the Chupacabra and Bigfoot, we were just like, yeah, that's Pamela. Like, it, it's like, that's just one thing. <laughs> Bunyip kind of is that. at a certain point, Pamela. <laughs> Um, so the seal dog variety is most often described as being between four and six feet long with a shaggy mm-hmm. black or brown coat. Okay. I like that. I do These like that. Bunyips have round heads resembling a bulldog, prominent ears, no tail whiskers, and like a seal or otter. And then the long necked variety is allegedly between five and 15 feet long. And is said to have black or brown fur, large ears, small tusks, a head like a horse or emu. Okay. Horse or emu? No, you need to make a decision. What? Look at the menu before you order. This is a group project. This really feels like a group. Yeah, we're thinking, I don't know, anywhere between horse and emu. Everything's still up in the air, but um, it's important that everyone feels heard. Someone posted a, a casting breakdown for a commercial where they said, like, we're looking for someone who's sort of like the following. Kumail Nanjani, Tina Fey, Amy <laughs> no, Poehler, no, no. Dave Chappelle. <laughs> it's just <laughs> like that We're is what looking the for someone is. good. <laughs> <laughs> and also Ellie Kemper was in there too. Oh my God. Really that wild. Is, wow. That's the Bunyip. The Bunyip <laughs> is a casting director who has gotten too much feedback from the ad people. That's just someone flipping through a People magazine. Yes. Like, oh. Um, elongated maned neck about three feet long with many folds of skin and a horse-like tail. Hmm. Um, the bunyip has been described by natives as amphibious, nocturnal, and inhabiting lakes, rivers, and swamps. Bunyips, according to Aborigines, can swim swiftly with fins or flippers, have a loud roaring call, and feed on crayfish, though some legends portray them as bloodthirsty predators of humans, particularly women and children. Oh, and then I- one last sentence. Bunyip eggs are allegedly laid in platypus nests. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, you were saying? I love Australia. Wow. What a treat. so good. It's just great to, I I guess that's sort of where the comparison as like Australia's Bigfoot is, where it's like there's such a wide variety of um, its degree of danger to humans, you know? Uh, I prefer to think of the bunyip as primarily a crayfish eating emu, you know? I agree. <laughs> yeah. That also is like a horse, but also a dog. <laughs> if you look at an emu long enough, you're going to see all sorts of things. Yeah. Okay. So this is interesting. So mm-hmm. non-Aboriginal Australians have made various attempts to understand and explain the origins of the bunyip as a physical energy entity energy over the past <laughs> 150 years. Um, writing in 1933, Charles Fenner suggested that it was likely that the actual origin of the bunyip myth lies in the fact that from time to time seals have made their way up the Murray and Darling River. So it's like a little bit further into the river than seals normally oh, go. Sure. And then they look up mm-hmm. and they're like, huh? Eh? And people are like, <laughs> that's a bunyip. Um, Out of and place that, animals. Yes. Um, and that the monster's alleged cry may be that of a bittern marsh bird. Um, sure. Which like, raise your hand if you're not a bittern marsh bird. Uh, classic. Super Classic. Um, but this is interesting. Uh, sorry, one sec. Okay. Another, su- another suggestion is that the bunyip may be a cultural memory of extinct Australian marsupials, such as the Diprotodon, 
Zygomaturus nototherium or Parlocestes. This connection was Anna, first. Really good work reading all those names. I would have just I given just, up. I just like I'm a full busybody who gets excited about pronouncing things, and I <laughs> I don't know that I do a better job than other people, but it does matter more to me, which does mean it. that I'm good at it. Thank you. Yeah. This connection was first formally made by Dr. George Bennett of the Australian Museum. Uh, mm. Okay, so these people. <laughs> it's funny. So, okay, so two white paleontologists cautiously suggested that aboriginal legends quote perhaps stemmed from an acquaintance with prehistoric bones or even living prehistoric animals themselves when confronted with the remains of some of the now extinct australian marsupials aborigines would often identify them as the bunyip they also note that legends about the mihirung paringmal of western western victorian aborigines may allude to the giant extinct birds of the i'm not going to say that word but it's like an old like prehistoric word yeah um so, and also the Southern cassowary, which is a giant psycho bird. <laughs> Have you seen a cassowary? Are they things that exist now? Yes. No. Oh, it's, a, it's just a giant weirdo bird. It's like a big emu with a blue head and that oh, yes. their yep. feet are it's very like violent. A, yes. And they've got like a, a weird sort of crest on top of their heads. Yeah. Yes. Correct. Yep. Got They're it. dinosaurs. Really? Yeah, I feel like I feel like in cartoons the penguin always used one of them to beat up Batman. That's really? kind of my understanding. Yeah, I feel like at least that's the cultural memory that I've inherited. You know. Wow. Okay, so this is Shane Carpani, the local Ngarindari Aboriginal culture. The bunyip is known as a Mulgawanki, and he says, "Quote: What I was taught, what he looks like, was he's half man and half fish. He's got a lot of the ribbon seaweed on him." He's twice the size of the average man. He's still a bit hairy and furry with big red eyes, big teeth, real sharp cloths, but also web hands, feet like a duck, oh. and his color is like the green brown color of the river. Dad the used wolf to man and the creature in the black lagoon had a baby and had that a baby. happened. And he's he works at the at a food co-op. Um, <laughs> oh my god. Um, dad used to always tell us the story of the Bunyip, the Mulgawanki, was so that we weren't allowed to go near the river's edge by ourselves, always go with a brother or sister of, or parents. Um, which is funny because this, this sort of ties in with a lot of the um, cryptid stories we've heard or a lot of the um, the Icelandic children things. Oh, yeah, where it's yeah, like, yeah. These are just little things that we tell our kids to keep them safe, but like we have to right. couch it in monsters. Yeah, kind of nursery bogeys. Yeah, like you just, you gotta, you gotta not drown and kids are bad at not (laughs) drowning. So what we're going to do is we're going to tell you that there's something that's going to eat you because that cause and effect is clearer to you than your lungs need air and you don't know how to swim. Um, Oh, sorry. So the Aboriginal version of Bunyip is pronounced Mulyawank when I was saying Mulgawanki. Wow. And we love to pronounce. Um, Oh, this is funny. Um, When Europeans first came to Australia, they were amazed at all sorts of weird animals like koalas and kangaroos. And they also heard about these other beings out in the billabongs. And for a long time, they still believe these animals that we now know as spirit beings existed out there. That's so funny. (laughs) Honestly, like (laughs) half the shit in Australia is less weird than a bunyip. 
I know every time I think about it, like I'm so fascinated by the ecosystem there and like what it has created. And it does kind of feel like Australia was a laboratory for aliens to be like, let's just, let's just throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. It's all here. I I guess maybe it's because it's so isolated from other land masses. And also so much of Australia is uninhabited. There are just endless videos, too, on YouTube of Australians with giant spiders in their homes and toilets. And that's hard for me, personally. You know, I don't think I can do it. I couldn't do it. I know, it's so scary. You have a beautiful country, but I I can't do it, Australia. I'm too scared. It's a long plane, and also your spiders are men. Spiders are men. They are. Honestly, though, as we're saying this, I would be totally down to come to Australia sometime. Can someone show us around? We'd love to get the whole scope of things. Tell us your scary stories. But like sort of seal us in a sleeping pod Mm -hmm. that nothing can get into. We just want one like personnel bodyguard to kill spiders. And that's it. We ask for nothing else. And well, that that's good enough for Andrew. But what I need is for a bodyguard who can make it so those spiders don't exist. <laughs> because I don't want to know that they're dead because then their ghosts could come and get me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I this honestly, that's reminded me a lot of uh, when I worked as a, a personal assistant. And one time, truly, my my boss did a thing that Agnes Skinner did in The Simpsons where she asked for for all this stuff to be in a bag. And then she was like, and I don't want the bag to be heavy. And I was like, <laughs> mm, okay, let me think about this. <laughs> oh my God, How can I fit so this good. all in the bag? So it's not heavy. Um, um, okay. So just to round this out. Yes. Um, so this is Shane still. Uh, oh, sorry. Wait, no, this is the head of an, uh, anthology for the South Australian Museum, Philip Clark. So he was the one talking uh-huh. about how Europeans were like, oh, koalas. Great. So bunyips are also real. Um, <laughs> The bunny ups, uh, sorry, sorry. Okay. So going back to Shane, um, he says that the story of the bunny up was an important cultural way of teaching him to respect the river. He was like the protector of the river, but it just taught us valuable lessons about not being greedy to share our food, to share what we've got in the river and only take what you need. But mainly as kids don't go near the water's edge by yourself because you might fall in and drown. And if there's no yeah. one there with you, the mullywonk's going to get you. Great. Practical, pragmatic. Okay. This has everything you need. It, it's got uh, eco sensibility and also some like sort of behavioral um, responsibility taking when it comes to not drowning. Again, the economy of your monsters, Australia, I have a lot of respect for. It's really good. Um, wow. And then, Andrew, can you look at a bunch of pictures of bunyips? Yeah, I would love to. I'm currently looking at one that appears to be uh, a series of colons. Like the body parts. <laughs> yes. The one that's crawling out of the. Yeah. It's lake. kind of a, fl- a floppy series of wet, fleshy cylinders. I'm going to say maybe that. Um, and then I'm seeing the prehistoric looking sort of like giant weasel. Yes. And then I'm seeing one. Oh, this one's interesting. This one's sort of like a chimera where it's got like kind of a rat face. And uh, and like a snake tail and like sloth like features. I'm seeing a lot of yes, that. I'm seeing some giant sloths, which is interesting. Thinking about the like prehistoric stuff. I'm also seeing a wet koala. A wet koala. I'm seeing one that just looks like a big puma with a man in his mouth. 
Yep. Um, I'm seeing kind of a Dilophosaurus, kind of a Dilophosaurus from, uh, you know, with the frills from Jurassic Park. Fuck. That's the gayest way I can describe the dinosaur. The one (laughs) with with the the frills. frills. Uh, The dinosaur with the frills, please. I'm having a party. Oh, my God. Um, Also, it looks like the Bunyip is a pretty popular um, children's book character. Yes. Um, So I see one where the Bunyip is wearing little overalls and a little bindle. (laughs) And it says, the Bunyip walked all day. And just as the sun was setting, he came to a quiet, still billabong. That's very sweet. Which I do have to say that I wore one shirt from the clothing company billabong in eighth grade. Yeah. And a substitute teacher pulled me into the hallway and said, what does that shirt mean? <gasps> oh, she just saw bong and went for she it. She saw bong. And I was like, I don't know. It's from Hot Topic. <gasps> wow. And it was one of those t-shirts that looked like you were wearing another long sleeve shirt under it, but it was just the long sleeve sewn to the the short sleeves. Yeah. My mom wouldn't let me wear a shirt with Ralph Wiggum on it that said I bent my Wookiee. That said what? I bent my Wookiee. There's like an episode where he like <laughs> falls on on a, on his Wookiee action figure and he oh says, I bent my God. Wookiee. And I was like, it's not. No, it's not sex. I bent my Wookiee. <laughs> that was my motto as a middle schooler, by the way. Was it's not it? sex. Uh, no, no. Oh, my God. Wait, who gave you the shirt? <laughs> my brother. My brother gave oh it to me for God. Christmas. And I think my mom, that was very, that was very much, I think, a hot topic purchase. I bet you my know. Wookiee absolutely is going to be a Hot Topic purchase. Well, Anna, thank you so much for that amazing look into Bunyip culture. It's a thrill to be a part of the Bunyip um, pantheon. I just, <laughs> I, I I care about the Bunyips. I like that a Bunyip can be anything. That's something I learned this week is that a Bunyip can be a lot of things. <laughs> a Bunyip is sort of like your type, you know, like you think you know what your type is, but then it's like all of a sudden it's a giant starfish. Mm-hmm. And, it's like, and then you're Wait, like, but- I'm kind of into this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, like, I've been getting with seals this whole time. <laughs> but you, uh, you Anna, really don't know. I have a, I have a proposal for the okay. end of this episode, just because okay. of an extenuating circumstance that has happened. I know this is not usually the day of the week that we do um, something spooky that happened to us this week, uh, but something spooky happened to me this week. Oh, Andrew, and please tell the people. And Anna knows because, truth be told, and this is me pulling back the curtain, folks, we recorded this once before, but uh, I was not, in fact, recording. So, so Andrew this and I is... are both magnetic. We have magnets in our blood, so we... <laughs> any kind of recording device, we can't do But it. I think I learned from telling it the first time, and this time I'll edit it down. Um, okay. Basically, as m- maybe some of you who've seen who follow my personal Instagram account, I... Uh, last Tuesday was making homemade tomato soup, found a recipe I really liked, and I was about to use our immersion blender to kind of make it a little more velvety. And I suddenly thought, oh, wait, Chris did a deep clean of the kitchen. I don't want to splatter everywhere. I'm going to do something smart, and I'll use our regular blender and pour the soup into that. Well, I went to the cupboard above the stove, and the blender fell out of the cupboard and fell directly on the handle of the pot of boiling soup oh. and caused it to ricochet and pour all over my legs and feet. Now, it could have been it could have been worse, and how it could have been worse would be if, in fact, I was wearing pants at the time of this burn. But, gentle listener, I was not wearing pants, and I share that with you oh. um, in trust and faith that sometimes you also cook in your underwear, and that's fine. Uh, but... Of course. It, it really went everywhere. Chris thought very fast and got me in a cool shower. 
Uh, the whole kitchen looked like a straight up he murder drew, scene. He drew an ice cold shower right away for you. Right away. Because yeah, he is he what? I screamed, I screamed fuck about 45 times. And within that time, the shower was already running and he knew what to do. So that's a, that's sort of the time frame we're working with here. And we live um, for a fireman's son. <laughs> really? Always go for a fireman's son. Yeah. If you can't, if you can't find a dermatologist to marry, marry a fireman's son. Um, so the burns were not as bad as they could have been. I thought they were all first degree burns except for my feet, which like blistered up immediately. But I was Here's like, this isn't thing. such a big deal. Here's the thing. From the social media post, you thought, oh, haha, sweet Andrew spilled some sauce and the sauce was <laughs> sitting on the stove like during dinner. You'd already made the sauce. had been sitting there and like, oh, if it fell on him, it was a little bit warm and that's it. What you don't know is the medical aftermath of the story. <laughs> so... I am the opposite of a hypochondriac in that I never think that there is something wrong. Even if all of the symptoms are staring me in the face, I'm like, well, I couldn't possibly have that. Um, so I thought everything was fine. I kind of went about my week. Uh, and then on Saturday night, I noticed that the burn was beginning to turn brown and blister. And I was like, uh. mm, this doesn't feel great to me. So on Sunday, uh, prior to the Oscars, I spent much of my afternoon in an urgent care I went there hesitantly. I kind of felt like I'm going to go in. A nurse is going to come in and be like, you're fine. It's a whatever burn. It's basically basically a sunburn. And the waiting and, room was sort of like a the first round, the qualifying round for Miss Coronavirus. <laughs> like just sort of everyone was like, do I have it? I don't know. I know everyone in the waiting room had those um, uh, mouth covers over, which I, I – I have seen conflicting things that some people are like, it would have no effect on the coronavirus, but I think, you know what, just try to be safe. No one looks I think that it's kind. silly. I think a mask yeah. is kind, but it was, it just from what you described, it seemed like everyone when there was like, I don't, I don't know that I have it. It's just like, I wonder if I do. Yeah. It and really, like, it doesn't have to be this year, but like maybe one day. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was very much like um, people who are not sure if they believe in mediums or not, you know? <laughs> uh, like, I've heard a lot about it. And I don't know. I, I don't know if it's wishful thinking. But also, it was, it's a real trip to sit in an urgent care in downtown LA and just listen to people come up and tell uh, the receptionist what their symptoms are. And the receptionist be like, you don't have to just write it down. <laughs> but then it's like, you get a sense into like what everyone's issue is. So mm-hmm. I really was expecting it to be like totally chill and fine and whatever. And then uh, the doctor comes in and she was like, this is a very big burn. I was like, ugh. And then she gave me a tetanus shot, which I was due for. Hey, everybody, Uh, when's the last time you got a tetanus shot? You should get one every seven years. Oh. Yeah. Okay. What if our our next ad was for tetanus shots? (laughs) Uh, Being a millennial is so pink. That's why. (laughs) So then immediately she was like, well, I want to give you uh, an antibiotic injection, but I'm worried because um, I I have clubbed feet and windswept hands. She was like, I'm worried that that could come with some osteopenia and intense antibiotics can have uh, an effect on bone density. And she was like, I don't want to do that. Uh, So then she prescribed me pills. And then she was like, and if the burn continues to spread, we're going to need to put you on an antibiotic drip, which is an incredibly scary sentence for some reason. Uh, but then this other nurse came in who kind of, I think, gave some misinformation medically. 
Um, oh. Where she was like, she came and she was like, yeah, this burn. Oh, gosh. I've had a burn like this, not, you know, like not so big. But you know what I did is I just pour milk on it. Whenever I get a burn, I pour milk on it. No, you're not supposed to do that. Yeah, that's the thing. I, I like the first thing they say on, on like uh, WebMD is like, don't put food on your burn. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. She, my my family was yelling at each other about whether or not you're supposed to put butter or oil on burns. That it just yeah. cooks your burn. Right. You shouldn't do it. Also um, in Chernobyl, they put milk on their burns and then someone's like, no, don't do that because of this. <laughs> I don't remember what this was, but anyway, go watch Chernobyl. It's not an ad. I just liked it. So Andrew, that should be on a billboard. Go watch Chernobyl. This isn't an ad. I just liked it. Um, so they put this, like they did like a full kind of mummy neon mummy wrap. They put a bunch of this like silver cream on my leg, Ooh, which felt colloidal silver. It yeah, it felt amazing. Ooh. And and also then I looked up that silver has um like naturally antiseptic qualities, which made me think, oh, I wonder if that's why people think like silver wards off evil, you know? Wow. Like if you got bit by a thing and like, I don't know. Yeah, it, it helped to keep infection from spreading. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a I was about to say humanitarian. <laughs> If you're a humanitarian, (laughs) as in a scientist (laughs) veterinarian of humans, (laughs) please write in. Um, But no, I'm fine. I'm actually not in a lot of pain. I just look like sort of a Lisa Frank mummy right now. It it just feels like a sunburn. It's just very itchy. And and, oh gosh, I think I'm just a little squeamish around uh, burns, like heat blisters and things. It just grosses me. I don't like looking at it. I'm so sorry that that happened to your body, your only body. No, it was very spooky in that I really did. I, I again, I'm I'm fine. It's it's not a it's not a big it's not a big problem. I just can't wear pants for the next couple days <laughs> or shorts, right? Or shorts because it's. I mean, I could maybe wear like like hot pants, but yeah, I don't know. It's not the season. I have a mumu that you could wear. And I'm just not there. <laughs> I have two of it. I, it's a it's a um, Mari Meko for Target Mumu, which is very fancy. I'll have you know. I'm listening. And yeah. I bought two of them because they were ten dollars, and I didn't okay. never have had someone to give it to. I so. I feel great about this, Anna. By the time um, I get to LA, you'll probably be healed, but I'll bring an extra yeah. just in case. That's the hope. Yeah, I'm sure everything will be fine. But yeah, that was my spooky thing because when the soup was careening towards me, uh, it really was kind of a life flashing before my eyes thing. Cause I, it, it, I don't know when that much boiling liquid is coming at you. I don't care who you are. You're going to begin to reexamine some of your life choices because soup was supposed to be my friend. And instead it betrayed me. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> I'm so sorry uh, of all the things for soup. You deserve better. Thank you. That's, I mean, I, it the, the to add insult to injury it it I have sung this soup's praises hither and thither all across this great land and I had just recommended it to our friends Billy and Liz saying how much I love it and how often I make it and uh, and yeah then it tried to kill me no we're boycotting tomato soup for Andrew Farmer and also if you want to stand with Andrew <laughs> hashtag I stand Drew with Andrew and pour a huge <laughs> pot of boiling soup on your legs and feet. Yeah, or down the sink, you know? Or whatever, down the sink. Whatever your preference is. It just depends um, on how much you love Andrew. <laughs> but that was my spooky thing that happened this week. Anna, what was uh, what was yours? Um, mine is that I heard my neighbor come just now. <laughs> 
So thanks for listening, guys. What an end. That's oh, a perfect boy. ending for a podcast, folks. You if live you're interested. For it. You love um, New York. And uh, thank you so much for listening to that story two times. Andrew, I'm so sorry it happened. And you can tell no. me every day forever because that's so bad. <laughs> uh, and everyone else, including our dear friends in Australia, get, get out, out forever. Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.